You see that stupid number in your checking account? It's called wasted potential. Now I'm gonna let you in on a little secret about something called the portfolio. And it's not gonna build itself, okay? Without you, it's just another number on a screen. Like a jungle full of bananas and no ape in sight. Well, I'm gonna take you to that jungle. Because in the case of these portfolios, it is gonna be up to each and every one of you. My speculative degenerates, my apes, and of course my apets, who will not hit the cell until your account either flies or flops and dies! Hello everyone and welcome back to Always Picking Electric Securities. It's your host Alex Marku. Today is January 13, 2022 and on today's episode I'll be filling you in on some of the market developments and then I'll let you know about some of the pros and cons about using Looprings trading interface. And then unlike mainstream media, I'm not going to block out the information of the Fed naming banks that got emergency repo loans during 2019. Then to move on to lighter subjects for my sports section, I'm going to recap all of my winning picks and then get you ready for the NFL playoffs this upcoming weekend. And then after I give you all of my picks for the sports section, I'm going to be finishing off the episode with the lesson on the reverse repos. Because the article I'll be talking about in the investing segment at least deserves a follow-up so you understand what reverse repos are. And then that way, I'm hoping you'll be able to understand the article I just explained to you and the potential severity of the problem at hand. So with all that said, I hope you enjoy the episode. Financial Disclaimer Since this is an investing podcast, I will give out the disclaimer that everything I do on this podcast has the potential to reach 100% loss. Welcome back my apes and retail investors that think alike. On today's investing segment, I'm going to talk about the two positions I added to this apes portfolio. And then after that, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Fed and the inflation rate. Then before I get to the main focusing point of the episode, I'll want to talk about my experience with Looprings trading system on L2's platform and give you some of the pros and cons I've got off of it. And then we'll come time for the real story. I'll be giving you yet another example of the true face mainstream media has when tough situations come at hand. Because if you're still delusional and you think mainstream media has your back and they're going to report on the most up and current news for you so that you're kept up to date on everything market situation wise, well, then I'm going to be sorry to be bursting your bubble today. But first, let's hop into an Apes portfolio update. Starting off with the two positions I added in this portfolio. And the first one which was added yesterday morning on January 12th was 11 shares of Naked at a share price of $3.49. Then I also at the same time bought 6 shares of Costs at $10.09. So I was able to buy 11 and 6 shares of the securities I wanted because the share price unlike that ADGI stock I was recommending to you did not happen to have a seriously crazy spike. Next for the APES update is evaluation of this portfolio itself. And in my gambling section, boy oh boy did I pick up all the weight of my losses. Because my securities department is still valued at a loss at $518.90. My crypto segment is staying stagnant at $183.39. But 
my gambling segment is valued at $560.83. Now remember, I only ever started this section with $250. This puts my total portfolio valuation at $1,263.12. It looks like I'm a smart man portfolio-wise because I'm up 5.26%. But if I told you the real way I'm up, it's really all from my gambling portion. And it's making up a lot of my losses right now. And now that I've finished off the Apes portfolio update, I wanted to dive in some market developments that have happened over the last couple of days. More specifically, earlier this week. Because on Monday, we had one person from the Fed resign. And then on Tuesday, we had Jerome Powell. He's the Fed regulator. He talked to senators about the policy they're going to be enacting because of this high inflation rates. Now I'm not going to bore you with an article or even a summary of the whole meeting because I didn't really even watch it. While I was at work I tuned in for about 5 minutes and I heard Jerome speak and one of my first thoughts was this is just political theater yet again so let me tune out. But what I'll let you know is the Sparks Notes version of what the whole meeting was about and that's inflation and the supply chain issue that we have at hand. Because Jerome Powell essentially told the senators that Inflation has been really hitting the economy hard, and the senators primarily have been telling Jerome Powell that it's hitting most of the middle class people. So the people living paycheck to paycheck now have to spend more money on gas, food, and everything. So that means you, the listener, as you're probably driving to work or listening at your home, eating whatever you're eating, that stuff you paid for is costing more. And it's costing more because of the rise of inflation. And there's a reason that there's this rise of inflation on top of many other factors. And one of the primary causes for it is a supply chain issue, which is primarily caused because of the lack of unemployment, which can be stemmed to the Omicron variant, but it also can be stemmed due to the start of this pandemic, and maybe now it's just starting to hit the economy. Because if you think about it not just from your local area, and maybe you're lucky to be in a first world country, but you gotta think about it from a global perspective. There's third world countries out there that don't have the resources other first world countries have. So when COVID hit them, it hit them harder. And the supply chain issue for them locally was probably felt really hard. They probably didn't have supplies or anything for long periods of time. Now how that affected someone in a first world country, you probably didn't notice it at first. Because we have all these news outlets, medias, and ways to escape things. But certainly slowly over time, some of the issues third world countries have started having with supply chain issues is now becoming a first world problem. And Jerome promised the senators that he will use his quote unquote tools to fix this inflation. Now, I don't know what the hell his tools mean, but I will let you know this. Essentially, what this probably means, at least from a speculative point, is that he's going to start tapering off faster meaning the Fed's going to cut back on the bond buying program they already have, and they're going to start looking into raising interest rates. Now, the raise of interest rates might come anywhere as soon as March, but March is probably the latest, so it could come sooner. And I can tell you this, that when the interest rates get raised and the Fed tapers off, something's going to happen out there to the market, and I'm willing to bet it's not going to be a pump of the market. But in my opinion, there were more serious matters that occurred this week, and it wasn't just Jerome Powell talking to the senators about the high inflation tools he's going to be using to fix it. 
because this is his department's fault that we're even in this situation. And I know you might be able to blame COVID and all this stuff, but it's the Fed's money printing policies that has caused inflation to reach what is now 7% because inflation numbers came out yesterday on January 12th and the year-over-year -year increase for the month of December was 7% last month. So this means last month during the month of December, you lost 7% worth of buying power compared to a year from there. That means in 2020 of December, you lost 7% worth of your buying power in the year 2021. So for every $100 you had saved from December, it is now worth $93 of buying power. And that shit's pretty fast to happen in just one year. And one thing that makes me even more upset, and actually even mad, I wouldn't even say upset, is the scandalous shit that happens at the Fed levels. Because I don't know if you remember hearing earlier, on Monday someone resigned, Tuesday Jerome talked to senators, and then on Wednesday we had the inflation numbers come out. Well, on Monday, the person that resigned was involved with the Fed. He was a chairman of the Fed. Why did he resign, you ask? Because the person was found trading financial assets in their own portfolio while being on the chair of the Fed during the whole rebalancing of stocks and bonds and markets that the Fed enacted in the early 2020 over COVID. So this guy had insider information and was trading on it. Who's this piece of shit, you ask? Well, it's not just him, it's a whole lot of others. There's a huge-ass laundry list of them. But this guy specifically who resigned on Monday is Richard H. Claudia. And him and other central bankers during early 2020 were trading financial assets in their own portfolio while the Fed was re-skewing the markets. So when the Fed implemented this buyback program for bonds, they knew exactly which bonds were under the buyback program. And guess what they probably did in their portfolio? They probably doubled down their positions and started asking for more money so they could put extra in it. I mean, this is insane. And you can just resign and take your profits home? All I gotta say is fuck you, Richard H. Claudia. Because I'm willing to bet that any one of us do that shit and we get our ass thrown in jail and a hefty ass fine that our family has to cover. And I just think it's bullshit because he's going to be able to resign and probably spend the rest of his life chilling on a beach with some friends. Maybe discuss more insider trading plays. So those were some of the early market developments we had this week. Inflation numbers came out and it's 7% over one year increase for the month of December. Jerome Powell told the senators he's going to use his magic wand and fix inflation. And then his leading buddy in command, Richard H. Claudia, decided to resign because he got caught for insider trading. And then before I dive into an article that just exposes this establishment and the shit foundation that it sits upon, I want to get into Loopring and the Layer 2 wallet I created and the trading process behind everything. I'll also let you know about some of the pros and cons I came across over the last day or two. So for starters, I decided to use personal finances to get this Loopring wallet stuff started and I'll start experimenting with it on this Apes portfolio as soon as I have a better understanding for everything. For now, what my plan with the crypto segment is going to be to hold everything. Because I looked at what the fees were to transfer all of my coins out from Coinbase and it makes zero sense to do so. So what my plan is going to be is just to hold on my coins in Coinbase and then at some point, when the prices are high, I'll sell it, and then I'll withdraw the cash because I won't be charged the ridiculous fee for that. 
and then I can move the cash around that way. Until then, all these monthly deposits of $100 or so, I'll be scattering throughout crypto projects if I find something. So let me be perfectly clear. I'm still moving on from Coinbase. It's just all of the coins in Coinbase itself right now, I'm treating as a cold hard wallet. I'm pretending that it doesn't exist anymore, but I know all of my login credentials for it. Because at some point in two or three years, the coin's values are probably going to be somewhere up compared to what I bought them at. And then my plan is going to be to sell them then. But I'm not going to be buying anything else from Coinbase, and I'm probably not even going to be logging into it as a matter of fact. What I'll be doing now is exploring the crypto world as it was intended to be explored. And that's completely decentralized and just trying new shit out here and there. So my first test is going to be with Loopring. And what I did is I transferred some personal Ethereum from my Binance account to my MetaMask wallet. And from my MetaMask wallet, I was able to deposit some Ethereum into Loopring's Layer 2 system and activate trading on Loopring's protocol. And I'm not going to try and explain to you all of the transfers and everything you need to do on a podcast especially, because it just wouldn't make sense if I explained all the little steps on how to transfer Ethereum coins from your Binance or whatever wallet to MetaMask and then to Loopring. It just, I don't see how it would make sense to do so on a podcast. So if I ever open up a YouTube account or something like that, I'll show it there. My best advice for you, just do what I did and look it up on YouTube. My primary focus will be to dive into all of these things for you, give you some pros and cons, and then you can decide maybe with some more research if it's for you. What I can tell you right now is when I transferred my Ethereum from my MetaMask wallet to Looprings Layer 2 wallet, there was still that initial hefty gas fee. So for example, my first transfer was about $150 worth of coins. I think I wound up paying about $180 worth. So some Ethereum went towards that gas fee. But here's where things got really cool. Because as soon as all of the Ethereum went over to my Layer 2 wallet, I now had all of my coins on this Loopring protocol. Now I wanted to see if the gas fee was going to be just as hefty if I made a second deposit, and unfortunately it is. So I'm going to be messing around with the ideas and seeing if there's a way to reduce the gas fees, or if it's only reduced once all of your coins are in Loopring's Layer 2 wallet. And then one quick final note I wanted to bring up before I start talking about some of the pros and cons I saw over the last two days. I should point out that the MetaMask wallet is only able to accept Ethereum based tokens. So if a token you're holding is not Ethereum based, you're not going to be able to send any coins to this MetaMask wallet. Now what my plan is going to be is to find out how to send certain coins to Looprings Layer 2 system if I can't send it to MetaMask wallet. So as I mess around with that, once I get an answer, I'll let you know what it is. For now, I'm not sure if there is one because one of the main problems these cryptos have is an interaction amongst each other. Unless the protocol is built on that crypto project to interact with certain coins, the only way these coins can interact with each other is if they're all on the same layer one. And a lot of these coins use Ethereum as a layer one so if another coin's project is built off a different layer, it's going to be hard for the coins to interact. For example, it's hard for me to put Bitcoin on Loopring's Layer 2 wallet system because, well, there actually isn't a Bitcoin. But they have a token that's very similar.
but I can't put actual Bitcoin on it because of this layer one concept. So now that I hope to have at least explained a little bit about Looprings protocol and where I'm up to date on it, let me talk about some of the pros and cons I encountered while trading on it just for a day or two. Because all I really did is I transferred Ethereum to my wallet and then I bought enough Loopring just so I could make one trade to see how it works. And I can honestly tell you that I think this Loopring protocol and not just Loopring itself but decentralized trading with the use of liquidity pools is the way for the future of trading in general. Right now it's just for cryptocurrencies but as soon as you can somehow convert this to just real world currencies and maybe even real world commodities and stocks, this is going to change the world of trading. Because let me explain the fees, if I can even call it that, of what I experienced. So I used my Ethereum to buy 69 coins of Loopring. And I chose that number for a funny reason. But regardless, when I talk about crypto coins from here on out, if I'm using a certain coin to buy another coin, I'm not going to denote the fiat currency value. Instead, I'll use fractions like this. I used about 0.032 Ethereum to buy 69 loop ring. Are you ready for the best part? I received 69 loop ring. Do you know what the fee was on the 69 loop ring received? 0.055 loop ring. Now that's like being charged 5 cents on a $69 ATM withdrawal. Do you think you can find that anywhere out there? Hell no. So that's what I mean by I think this can be the future of trading. If you can minimize these fees, holy shit is that something cool. So the reduction of fees is definitely one pro on Loopring's layer 2 trading system. Another pro is that they provide these things called AMM pools. Now I'm still very very new to crypto. So I'm going to explain this in such a beginner way, and I'm not really sure if it's even true. So don't hold anything I say right now accountable, but I will say I'm going to mess around with the idea to see how it actually works. And I'll let you know what really happens in reality based off of what it truly says on paper. But on paper, AMM pools is basically a way for you to add your coins as liquidity for Looprings layer 2 trading system. This is essentially like if you were able to add any extra sitting cash in your brokerage system and give it to the actual brokerage and then they would give you some kind of interest on that because you're providing them liquidity. Now your brokerage isn't going to ask you for money to provide liquidity because they have enough money and if they run out, guess what they can do? Just ask the Fed or ask more taxpayers for another bailout. But back to the main point and these AMM pools. So essentially what you can do is you can provide coins to these pools. And I'll explain some of the most liquidity wise pools on Loopring's layer 2 trading system to explain it. So in Loopring right now, I'm looking at the top 3 most liquid pools. And the top 3 most liquid pools is the Loopring to US dollar coin, Loopring to Ethereum, and then Ethereum to the US dollar coin. So these pools are put in pairs for a reason because the only way you can provide liquidity to these pools is if you were to provide both coins. And the way you provide liquidity is let's say you want to provide 50 Loopring coins and 50 US dollars to the pool. What you would then do is take 50 Loopring coins, 50 US dollar coins off of your portfolio, give it to this liquidity pool, and then they give you an APR. So what this APR is, 
is how much money or interest you would be earning per month or whatever if you were to keep your money in the liquidity pool instead of keeping it in your portfolio. So far, that's all I have for you. And I'm going to be trying to add some money to these liquidity pools just to kind of see what, how it works. And I'll let you know if this is really how it works or if there's something better behind the scenes. But now let me get to some of the cons of using Loopring's Layer 2 trading system, and that's that the onboarding can be quite a process. As you saw, I had to do a lot of things just to get myself to even be able to trade on this system, and then once I was able to do that, you're going to find yourself with some more things that you might see as cons, because keep in mind this is still a very early protocol. For example, not only is the onboarding difficult, but the initial gas fee transfer still exists. So some people can argue, why should I transfer my coins to this Loopring Layer 2 system if I'm going to have to pay this big gas fee in the first place? The reason is because, in theory, as you trade further on Layer 2 systems, you're not going to be paying any more of that gas fee. It's going to be that small fee I just told you, $0.05 cents for every $69. But there are still limitations to this trading system. For example, there's a minimum amount required when you set a trade. So you can't just go onto this trading platform and try and buy one coin of Loopring. You have to buy, I don't know, a minimum of 50. Or for some coins, it sets a minimum mark. So this means you can't put small orders. And you can, it's about $50 worth an order. But you see how you can't make small trades on this yet. And it probably has something to do with the liquidity pools right now. So right now it seems to be an issue. But I think as Loopring grows, and these liquidity pools do too, this minimum requirement might eventually go smaller and smaller until it's so minimal it actually won't do a thing. But for now, it's definitely still a con on Loopring's Layer 2 trading platform. And another con is that you can't trade all the coins. And obviously, just how I said earlier, this is more of a crypto issue than anything. It still is an issue that exists. So if you're coming onto Loopring's system to try and buy yourself some Bitcoin, just know that you can't. That doesn't limit you from not being able to buy Bitcoin out there in the crypto world, it's just off of Loopring's Layer 2 interface, you can't do it yet. And I'm sure there's going to be plenty other pros and cons that I come across on Loopring's Layer 2 trading system. But I only really had one trade on this system so far, so I'm still going to be messing around and letting you know what they are. For now, that's all I have for you. The pros is that the transaction fees are very low, and you can add your coins to a liquidity pool and try and earn some interest off of it. Some of the cons is that the onboarding can be quite a lengthy process and it's not necessarily super simple. And then on top of that, after you do all of this onboarding, your initial fee to transfer all your coins still costs a lot because of that gas fee. And then you can't even trade all of the coins you want and there's a minimum buy requirement on almost every single coin there is on this trading platform. With all that said, I still think Loopring's Layer 2 trading system has a lot of room for growth, and I think decentralized trading with liquidity pools is definitely the new way of trading for the future. And I can't wait as soon as the world catches up. And now, are you ready to hear the first article that made me shed my first tear in over a year and a half? I'm not kidding. At some point at midnight a couple days ago, well, I don't remember what day it was, maybe two or three days ago from the time this episode gets aired. I read this article, and it was just by scrolling Reddit. But I scrolled through Reddit and found this article, and I read it, 
and I actually had a tear run down my cheek because I finally understood what all this reverse repo shit meant and just how drastic the measures can be. Because remember, I have my little accounting nerd brain and I always think of things in the aspect of numbers and behind the scenes how stuff might work. So as soon as I finished reading this article, I had an oh shit moment. And I'm not going to be able to explain that oh shit moment to you, but I'm hoping after I give you a summary of this article, and maybe even a shout out to this kind of article publishing company, that you can open up your eyes and start realizing that, holy shit, maybe the establishment and the media out there isn't truly what they say they are. I mean, after all, the only reason I'm even starting a podcast is because I want to make media more transparent, and not just any media, but financial media. I think it should be extremely transparent. I don't give a shit if banks tell you exactly how much cash they have on their hands at that second. That's how transparent things should be. So now that I've set the tone, let me at least tell you the publishing company I got my information off of. Because if you want to read this article, or many others, off of the kind of wrongdoings that happen out there by this establishment, well, just go onto Wall Street on Parade. Because they've got two authors, Pam Martins and Russ Martins, and similar to mainstream media, they cover most of the news in the financial sector and the markets, and they also follow Wall Street. They just happen to do it in a different way. And with an article they published on January 3rd of 2022, and I know it's old news because technically it's 10 days ago from when this episode is going to be aired, but keep in mind, I'm still going to be 10 days ahead of mainstream media. The article the Wall Street Parade published on January 3rd of 2022 was titled, There's a News Blackout on the Fed's Naming of the Banks that Got Its Emergency Repo Loans Some Journalists Appear to Be Under Gag Orders. So that's the title of their article. Seems a little bit different to mainstream media if you ask me, but they seem like a news source that's a little bit more trustworthy as well. And now what my plan is going to be is to read some of this article, read some of these paragraphs, and then I'll also summarize little bits of it afterwards. And this is how the article starts. Four days ago, the Federal Reserve released the name of banks that had received $4.5 trillion in commutative loans in the last quarter of 2019 under the emergency repo loan operations. Amongst the largest borrowers were J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, and Citi Groups, three of the Wall Street banks that were at the center of subprime and derivatives crisis in 2008 that brought down the U.S. economy. That's blockbuster news, but as of 7 a.m. this morning, which is January 3rd, 2022, not one major business media outlet has reported the details of the Fed's big reveal. So what I'm hearing is that these three banks needed a huge emergency repo loan in the last quarter of 2019, which means during October, November, and December of 2019, these three banks and others, because it's not just the three banks, but these three banks were involved, had a cumulative rollover of $4.5 trillion in loans given out to them. What does this mean? This means for this three months, all of the loans given out to banks totaled $4.5 trillion worth. And that was just three months. In 2019, this was all before the pandemic. 
Now, if you go a little bit lower down in the article, the article starts talking about a Dodd-Frank Act. And in the article, they claim that the Fed was legally required to release the names and banks and the amounts that they borrowed on the last day of the eighth calendar quarter following the calendar quarter in which the covered transaction was conducted. Now, I don't know what the F I just read, but what this is, is just a bunch of financial jargon to confuse people. And what's cool is that the Wall Street Parade, in terms of the articles that they write, was on this faster than any other news source. Because during October, the Fed was releasing the amounts of money that was going on in the repo program, but not the banks it was giving the money to. And the Wall Street Parade was covering the story while it was happening in 2019. And since they weren't releasing the names of the banks, well then they did their homework and figured out and told us the deadline by when the Fed was required to report it. Which as of that stupid sentence I just said, which is on the last day of 8th calendar quarter following the calendar quarter in which covered transaction was conducted, all that BS literally means is that they had to report the banks and the names of the banks that they gave all these repo loans out to, and that date just so happened to be January 3rd of this year, which is 10 days ago from my episode airing. Now why do I think this is significant information? Because on January 3rd, and as a matter of fact for that whole goddamn week, I didn't hear a thing about this. Did you hear that JP Morgan was in a credit crisis in the end of 2019? Did you hear that Goldman Sachs needed to borrow at least a billion dollars probably, or even more worth of liquidity, because they were in a credit crisis at the end of 2019? Because I didn't. And the Fed literally just told us at the beginning of this year, hey, these three banks were in a huge liquidity crisis. These three banks were in a huge credit crisis at the end of 2019, and we had to bail them out. Oopsies. Because this article also points out that the Fed hasn't intervened in the repo market since the 2018 financial crisis, since the 2018 financial housing crash. And I already know what the hell mainstream media is already gonna say. Oh well, it was COVID. Yeah? Well guess what? This article is already on top of that. Because they are quick to point out that the first case of COVID in the US was not reported in the CADC until January 20th of 2020. And the World Health Organization did not declare a pandemic until March 11th of 2020. And all of this money started being printed September 17th of 2019, so a couple months before the shit hit the fan. And I'm not talking about money hitting the fan, I'm talking about the world hitting a pandemic. So you can't possibly blame a pandemic for this credit crisis. But guess what the mainstream media is going to be able to do? Exactly that. And you ready to find out how mainstream media reacts when they're given really important stories? Because in this article, both these authors and this publication company were reaching out to all the mainstream media news sources and asking why the radio silence. Because in this paragraph, I quote, the most puzzling part of this news blackout is that a majority of the reporters who had covered the Fed story at the time it was happening in 2019 are still employed at the same news outlets. We emailed a number of them and asked why were they not covering the important story. Silence prevailed. We then emailed the media relations contact 
for Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Financial Times, and Washington Post, inquiring why there was a blackout on this story again. Again, silence. End quote. So you see how mainstream media works. When there's a story that's scandalous, and it can put someone in the dark, but it's not them, they publish it. When there's a story that's scandalous, but it can literally ruin their whole little establishment and money-making pump-and-dump schemes, well, they stay quiet, say hush-hush, and probably make up some story about a dog longboarding. Ooh. And essentially what I got from that little excerpt is the media was quick to jump in on, oh, let's talk about $4.5 trillion being loaned out to all these banks. There's a credit crisis. We don't know who it is. Ooh, that's a fun story. Let's talk about it. And then two and a half years later, when the actual names of the banks are given out, they're dead-ass quiet because JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and Citigroup is on that goddamn list. And what makes this article great is they theorize on some of the possibilities. Now remember, because the Fed and the world out there in the establishment is not transparent with you, the only thing left to do is theorize and see how things work out in the present, and hopefully shit doesn't hit the fan if your theory is shit's gonna hit the fan. But one of the first theories they have is that the media isn't covering this story because then it would just point out that the Fed, yet again, is not doing something great. And so far under this term, under Jerome Powell, the Fed hasn't been too great because there's been all of these insider trading allegations. And on top of that, now you've got inflation increasing. So you would start having some serious questions with what's going on in that regulatory body if you're finding out they're loaning out all of this money to these three big banks. And not just three big banks, but they're doing it with others as well. And then another possible story for why there's this media blackout well, because three of the banks charged, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and Citigroups, are actually large part share owners of the New York Fed. You heard it right. The Fed that is actually giving out loans to these big banks is largely partly owned by the actual fucking banks. So you're telling me the players in control of the Fed don't want a story published about the Fed that can make it look like the Fed is doing something bad, especially because their names are attached to it? Sounds like mainstream media to me. So yeah, I'm not really sure what to think, but I do know that if you let it get to you and let it bring you down, that's exactly what these bigger powers want. They don't want you to believe you have any chance in fighting at all. So I'm gonna do the complete opposite. I see this story, and I'm going to treat all this bad market news as something positive. Sure, inflation is up 7% from year over year end. We've got major supply chain issues in our third world countries that are now affecting first world countries, and first world countries are having severe spikes in unemployment because of the Omicron variant and more COVID cases rising. But Jerome Powell with his little magic wand and his henchmen crew who perform nothing but insider trading told me he's going to find a way to fix it. So I'm going to restore my faith in the Fed, especially because they're owned by the three large banks that consistently need to borrow these large repo loans off of them. So where do I find any kind of silver lining in all of this? Well, if you heard it from me first, then I'm technically doing my job. 
Remember, I created this podcast to create transparent news source of media, primarily in the financial markets. So if you're hearing about all this repo bullshit from me, I'm doing my job, and mainstream media isn't, which means I'm actually transitioning towards a media we should start listening to. At least I hope so. And now try to always remember that although things might seem like shit in the short run, if you zoom out, in the long run, as long as you're still running, things are always going to go up for you. So that's going to put a wrap on the investing segment for today. I've given you a quick rundown on how it is to trade on Looprings Layer 2 trading system, and I'm going to continue to do so and provide more pros and cons as I find out about them. And then I decided to talk about something that mainstream media decided to black out, and that's naming three big banks that were involved in these Fed repo loans back in the last quarter of 2019. So this doesn't even account all of 2020 and 2021. So buckle up, and remember, if we crash in the short run, we're always going to go up in the long run. So don't keep your head down for too long. And until next time, ape out. Welcome back, my friendly degenerates and anyone that just likes to listen to this sports gambling segment. On today's segment, I'm going to recap my winning picks, and boy did I have a couple. And then after I break down the NFL playoff bracket and playoff picture, I'm going to let you know which teams I think are going to win, and then I'll give you a couple picks I have for this weekend's game, and some futures I have for the NFL playoffs. But first, let's recap the picks. And oh my god, did I have one of my best round robins since that one Thursday night football one that went perfect 7 for 7. And what's great is this slate only went 3 for 7. And that was the NBA round robin I created on Monday, full of underdogs. Now, I happen to call every single team that was underdogs, but I'll recap which teams I had picked on the slate. And it was the Pistons, Hornets, Spurs, Pacers, Rockets, Kings, and Blazers for the Monday night slate. Now, like I said, I only had three winners on this round robin, and that was the Pistons beating the Bucks, the Hornets winning their game, and then the Blazers beating the Nuggets. But the Pistons were plus 550 odds, and the Blazers were plus 375 odds. Are you ready to hear the real, true numbers that matter? Because this was a seven-pick round robin, and I put a $2 risk bet on every single parlay it created, right? I risked 42 total dollars on this slip. And I won $67 of pure profit by only going 6 for 7. How you ask? It's because of those odds. It's because I had two significantly high odd team win. A plus 500 odd parlayed with a plus 300 odd is an insane amount of winnings. I won't check the exact math behind it, but a $2 bet on a parlay of plus 500 and plus 300 winning would essentially pay out probably at least $40. And that's why this round robin was able to win me so much money, because I had two heavy underdogs win. And I'm glad I was able to hit such a great round robin on you guys, because I went 3 for 7 with my picks, and I won 67 goddamn dollars, only risking $42 in the first place. Now you know why I love gambling, and now you know why I introduced round robins to this betting strategy. I knew it might take a while for me to hit some winners, 
to actually show you the numbers behind it. But I'm hoping with the more bet slips I create, more and more of my picks make sense to you and you start seeing things how I do, at least in a numerical sense. Because if you can transform 10 to 1000, then do that with money. Then after that successful day of betting on Monday, it didn't stop because on Tuesday, I had two other plays in place. I had an NBA parlays pick, which was the Warriors spread and the Sun spread, and I wound up spending $20 on a parlay of the Warriors to cover a 1.5 point spread and the Suns to cover a 4 point spread. The Suns wound up winning by exactly 4, so their bet would have pushed, but this bet didn't matter anyways because the Warriors wound up losing to the Grizzlies by 8, so they didn't cover their spread and this bet lost me $20. However, I had a second bet slip, and it was a soccer one mixed with two Premier League teams. I had Southampton to get a win in their game, and then I had West Ham to win by at least two goals. And that Southampton game was played on Tuesday, and they won 4-1. So after Tuesday, I still had a bet slip alive going into Wednesday, along with the four other NBA parlays I created. And what was great is West Ham won 2-0, so they won exactly by 2 early on Wednesday morning. Because the Premier League, sometimes they play their matches early. They played this match around 11.45 a.m. my time. So I knew the score before my NBA games were played. What was great, a $15 bet risk on this parlay won me $43.38. So over Monday and Tuesday, I made $67 of pure profit on my round robin, $43 on this parlay, and then I lost my $20 on the Warriors and Suns parlay I created. Overall, not bad though. That's $80 of pure profit in just two days. And then on that Wednesday, I also had four NBA team parlays created. And for the first one, I wound up having the Sixers to cover a spread of minus five, mixed with the Heat, which were an underdog to win. The Heat were able to win as an underdog, but unfortunately my Sixers sucked and lost to the Hornets. So they didn't cover their spread at all and this bet slip lost me $10. Moving on to another parlay I created for this day, I had the Jazz to win by at least 5.5, mixed with the Celtics to win by at least 2.5. The Celtics were able to cover their spread, but the Jazz also were upset unfortunately, so this bet slip also lost me $10. And then the final two parlays I had created for this Wednesday, both had the Bulls to at least cover a spread of minus 2, and then one of them had the Kings mixed in to win, and the other one had the Knicks mixed in to win. Unfortunately, the Bulls weren't able to cover their minus two spread against the Nets. They actually wound up losing, so both these bet slips lost for me, and I lost $10 on each slip, which is $20 a piece. And now that I've gotten my recapped picks out of the way, let me move on to the NFL playoffs that are going to be coming this weekend. We've got a nice, wild, first-time NFL wildcard weekend being played three straight days. That's right. We have two games of NFL football on Saturday, three games on Sunday, and then one game on Monday. And they're all playoff games. This is the first time Roger Goodell is doing this, and I gotta say, NFL wildcard weekend is gonna be awesome. Now before I give out my picks, I actually want to talk about each game and just give my input on what I think will happen, and then I'll give my picks respectively afterwards. This way, if you want to bet a different way, you can at least use the small little analysis I give you. And what better game to start off than the first Saturday night game being played, which is going to be the Raiders visiting the Bengals. This is a game that I think is going to be played on high emotions. 
You've got the Raiders sneaking in the playoffs after the crazy season they've had, with the firing of their coach and the off-field issues they've had. And then on the other side of the script, you've got the Bengals, who two years ago were in rebuild mode, and now they've got their franchise quarterback, a franchise receiver, a pretty decent running back, and a defense that's willing to play every single week. Another fun little stat off the top of my head, I know the Bengals haven't won a playoff game in well over a decade. I don't know how long their playoff drought is since their last win, but it's been forever. And now you've got a young team in the Bengals hosting a playoff game against a young team in the Raiders, and the only real experience I would argue is Derek Carr at quarterback, and even he missed his first playoff game due to an injury. So I think this is going to be a high game of emotions, there's going to be plenty of mistakes, but it has potential to be probably one of the most exciting games in my opinion. With all of this said, I'm going to be choosing the home team, because if we're going on a game of emotions, I would feel safe putting my money on the home side. Then following that game, we're going to be having a very awesome classic divisional matchup between the New England Patriots visiting the Buffalo Bills. And I think, honestly, if you're a Bills fan, this is the worst matchup you could have asked for in the first round of the playoffs. Because you've got a lot to play for. You were possible Super Bowl contenders earlier this year. And now the first game in the playoffs is against the Patriots. So you might be one and done. Yeah, I think all the pressure is in Buffalo in this one. Because they're the better seed. They seem to have had the better season. And they don't have a rookie quarterback. So they have everything to fight for, and they have the monkey on their back that the Patriots always beat them. Sure, the Bills were able to beat the Patriots in New England a couple weeks ago, but that was the regular season. And now the playoffs are starting, and the pressure is on them. Whether they'll be able to perform with the pressure on or not, I don't know. What I do know is that on the Patriots side of the ball, in my opinion, the only thing that can really hinder them is Mac Jones. After all, he's a rookie quarterback so you're not sure what to expect from him. That said, this could be a Mac Jones revenge game, because the last thing he remembers is losing to the Bills in New England. I also think if you're looking at head coaches, it's a no-brainer who's smarter. This is going to be a really close game, and I think it's actually going to be a fun one. Regardless, I find myself hard betting against the Patriots and Bill Belichick, even if they have a rookie quarterback at helm, and I like picking the Patriots in this one because they're underdogs. And then after that game, that's going to be wrapping up Saturday's slate for football. Then, we get to wake up the next morning to some more football. And in my case specifically, I get to wake up and watch the Eagles play in the playoffs. Now, I don't care what happens and how we play. Because let me paint this picture to you. The Eagles a couple months ago were 3-6 and six, and all I was daydreaming about is the three draft picks that the Eagles are going to be getting. One from themselves, one from the Colts, and one from the Dolphins. Now, it's a way better story. The Eagles are in the playoffs. The Colts and the Dolphins are not. We still get their first round draft picks next year. And we're the worst seed in the NFC in the playoff rankings. So if we lose our first playoff game, guess what? We have the best available draft pick left considering we still made the playoffs not only that we still get to pick below our original picks because the dolphins and the colts weren't able to make it 
So thank you guys. And I wouldn't be a fan if I gave you true analysis of this game and picked the bucks. So what I'm going to be doing is giving you zero analysis of this game, going with my gut and hope as a true fan and saying the Eagles are going to pull off an upset win here. And I see a path for it. Pressure Tom Brady, run the ball, don't let him have it. That's the way I see this game coming out. So the only way I think the Eagles could win this game, and I actually am going to say multiple ways, but the way I think they're going to win this game Sunday morning is running the ball, playing a low-scoring football game, and just grinding it out. So if you want to bet the under in this game, I highly recommend you do. Instead, what I'm going to be doing is picking the Eagles. And whether that's wasting my money or not, as a fan, I know I'm not throwing away my fandom. And then right after I get to watch the Eagles just absolutely kick Father Time and Tom Brady's ass, I get to tune in to the Niners playing in Dallas. So on the off chance that somehow the Eagles get upset by the Bucks and I have to watch my team go home, don't feel bad for me. Remember, next year the Eagles have three first round draft picks and a bunch of talent hopefully they don't get rid of. And to make it better, if the Eagles wind up losing, well I get to watch next game and I can pray to God that Dallas winds up following in the same footsteps. Because the Eagles weren't expected to make the playoffs. However, Dallas a couple months ago, they were expected to be in the Super Bowl. So we have zero pressure and they at least have a little bit. And honestly, Dallas doesn't have a very favorable matchup. They've been losing a lot of their players recently, and their defense isn't as great as it was in the beginning of their season. That being said, their offense is still super explosive. And unless the Niners are able to contain the offense, I could see this being a high-scoring game. The thing I really don't like, though, is honestly the one thing that's hurting the Niners, and that's their quarterback, Jimmy Garoppolo. He's had a hand injury on his throwing hand, so it'll be interesting to see if he hinders the Niners or if he's able to help them. Because as a team, the Niners with a pretty solid or even okay quarterback are able to perform amazing. But when Jimmy G gets in the way is when they start to play bad. And honestly, I think Dallas is going to find just another way to choke because this is the same Dallas team, same Dallas franchise, and they're not going to get over that hump with Jerry Jones at the helm. So give me the Niners in this game as underdogs, and let's just pray that Jimmy G doesn't go out there and throw this game away. And then on Sunday Night Football, to wrap up our Sunday slate, we're going to have Big Ben Roethlisberger visiting Patrick Mahomes in Kansas City. So we have the Steelers playing the Chiefs, and honestly... I think this is going to be one of the ugliest games out of all the games on the slate. And I say that because the Steelers defense is amazing. The Chiefs defense is pretty average. But the offense of the Steelers is trash. And the Chiefs offense is great. But compared to that Steelers defense, I actually think it's going to be hard for them to move the ball on them. So I see this being a very low scoring very ugly, gritty, and nitty game. Do I still see the Chiefs coming up on top? Absolutely. I actually think the Chiefs could win by 10. That doesn't mean the Chiefs winning by 10 won't be an ugly game. I mean, it could be something like 13-3. to That would be a very ugly game, but I could definitely see it. 
especially the way the Steelers play defense. And this is Big Ben's last game, unless he finds a way to win. But I've already told you my point in case in this game, and I think the Chiefs are going to find a way to still win by double digits. Are they going to blow out the Steelers? Absolutely not. I think by the time we go into the fourth quarter of this game, it's going to be a one possession game, and the Steelers fans are going to tell themselves, man, if we had that one play go this way, we possibly could have had a chance. And it's true, because I think this game's going to be close up until the end where the Chiefs either kick a field goal or score a late game touchdown to put them up by double digits. And it'll at least be awesome that Big Ben was able to play one last playoff game, and we can thank the Jacksonville Jaguars for that. Because had they not beaten the Colts, Big Ben would have played his last game against the Ravens. Alright, and then for the first time ever, we're going to be having an NFL playoff game being played on a weekday. That's right, on Monday we're going to be having the Arizona Cardinals playing the Rams for the final game of the wildcard weekend. And honestly, I don't have too much analysis on this game, aside from that I just wrote I think that the winner of this game is going to lose next week. The reason I say that, I honestly think both teams came crawling into the playoffs. I don't know if both teams started off strong, well actually I do know. The Cardinals started off amazingly strong in the beginning of the season, the Rams have been up and down throughout the season, and the Cardinals limped into the playoffs, I would say, by losing a lot of their remaining games, and the Rams just don't seem to consistently be able to put up a good performance. So I think this is going to be a divisional battle between two teams that just happened to limp into the playoffs because they started off strong or were able to beat bad teams throughout the season. What this means in my book is that the very next week, whichever team this team plays, I think they're going to lose. So I'm going to keep that in mind, and I'm going to bet that way, regardless of what happens in this game. And which team do I think limped into the playoffs more than the other? That team, in my opinion, is the Cardinals. Not only that, but they're also the more injured team. So I'm going to have to side with the Rams on this one, but that doesn't mean I like the Rams as an NFL favorite. I think they're actually going to lose whoever they play next week. I don't care who it is. So those are the NFL wildcard weekend games we have this upcoming weekend. And I have listed all of the games and what my prediction at least is going to be and how the games will go. What I will do now is let you know the exact bets I placed. Because I placed my traditional round robin play that I do and I made another teaser. But I also did something I haven't done on this betting account yet. And that's, I made a couple futures picks. Now the futures picks I made are just for this NFL playoff, so they're not super far out. And what a futures play is, if you're not sure in the betting world, is when you bet on something out in the future. So for example, if you want to bet the Super Bowl winner or possible Super Bowl matchups, you can do that by a certain deadline, and that's called a future. You would then put a bet in on it. So I'm going to let you know what my... NFL wildcard game picks are, and then I'll let you know what my future picks are. So let's start off with my round robin that I created for the NFL wildcard weekend. And what I chose in this round robin is the Cincinnati spread, which is minus five and a half, the New England Patriots money line because they're an underdog, the Eagles money line because they're an underdog, and because I'd be wrong if I chose against them, the Niners money line because if the Bucks happen to win, 
I want to at least feel good and root for the Niners. And it would be cool if the Niners could beat the Cowboys because I just hate Dallas and I'm not going to put my money anywhere near them, even if they wind up winning the Super Bowl this year. Then my Sunday night football pick for the Chiefs game is going to be the Chiefs to cover their spread. And when I put in the bet, their spread was at minus 12. So this means I would need them to win by at least 12 to get a push, but if they were to win by at least 13 points, then my bet would win. And then for the final game, which is the last game in this wildcard weekend slate, it's the Rams, and I chose the Rams to win by at least 4 points. So for this round robin slate, I have the Bengals to win by at least 5.5, the Patriots, Eagles, and Niners money line because they're all underdogs, and then the Chiefs to win by 12, and the Rams by 4. This is a 6-team slate round robin, so it only created 15 total parlays. Now traditionally I've only put 1 or 2 dollars on my bets per parlay, but for this one, because it only created 15 parlays, 1-5, I wanted to put 3 dollars per parlay. So I'm risking 45 total dollars on this play. Now the next bet slip I wanted to create was my 6 team pick NFL teaser because there's 6 games going on this NFL wildcard weekend. And for all 6 teams, I only bought 6 points on their teasers. For the Bengals, I was able to get their spread at plus 0.5. For the Patriots, I have their spread at plus 10. The Bucks, I chose their spread at minus 3. The Niners, I chose their spread at plus 9. The Chiefs, I chose their spread at minus 6, and then the Cardinals, I chose their spread at plus 10. Now I have two points of emphasis I want to talk about real quick about that teaser. The first one is the Bengals, where I said their spread is plus 0.5. What this means is if there was a tie, technically they would cover the spread, but this is the playoffs, and you can't have any ties, so for this bet to hit, I would only need the Bengals to win. The next point is because you heard me choose the Bucks at minus three. So yes, this means I'm choosing the Bucks to win by a field goal, which essentially counteracts my Eagles bet. But I'm being realistic here in this teaser, and honestly, choosing the Bucks to beat the Eagles by at least three, cross my fingers, should be a cakewalk, and I'm hoping it doesn't happen, and I'm hoping that's the only part of the bet that doesn't happen on my teaser pick. But Realistically, from a betting standpoint, choosing the Bucks to beat the Eagles by three is super smart because, well, it just makes sense financially. Emotionally, I hate it, but I'm still sticking with the pick because it makes sense for this teaser. And then for the gambling segment, I wanted to finish off with the futures pick I have for the NFL playoffs. So I'm not sure what sports bookies you guys use when you're betting, if you're listening to me, but if you use my bookie, you can at least find some of these futures that I'll be betting on. If you can't, then maybe you can just root for them for me. So let me start off with one of the first futures that caught my eye, which was to have a wildcard team make the Super Bowl. So what this means is if the Raiders, Patriots, or Steelers on the AFC side or the Eagles, Cardinals, or Niners on the NFC side managed to represent in the Super Bowl, so they just need to make the Super Bowl, this bet would hit, because those three teams on each side of their conference are considered wildcard teams. And the odds on this future is plus 250, and I put a $25 bet on this. So if the Raiders, Patriots, Steelers, Eagles, Cardinals, or Niners happen to make the playoffs this year, this bet slip is going to win. The next bet slip that seemed to catch my eye is the Super Bowl matchup. 
And, I mean, I chose favorite teams, obviously, but I chose the Chiefs and the Packers to make the Super Bowl just because I think in the AFC, there actually isn't a clear-cut contender. And in the NFC, it's between the Bucks and the Packers, if you ask me. And I'm just going to be choosing the Packers since they have the home field advantage. Regardless of my reasonings, if the Chiefs and Packers are able to meet in the Super Bowl, the odds on this bet was plus 500 when I bought it, and I put in $25 risked on it. So those are going to be two futures that aren't going to hit until the Super Bowl is played. The other two futures I've placed are futures that are going to be happening after this NFL wildcard weekend is played. The first one is a future on any game to go into overtime. So this means out of all the six games, if one of them, just one, goes to overtime, this bet slip would hit. And the odds on that are plus 250 and I risk $20 on this bet. And then I decided to choose a really outrageous bet, but it's just something fun to root for and why not? And it involves my Eagles and more importantly, it involves my quarterback Jalen Hurts. Now, if you go on the futures, you can choose who you think the leading rusher, who the leading receiver, and who the leading pass thrower is going to be for wildcard weekend. There's odds assigned to all these different various players. For the leading rusher, however, I chose Jalen Hurts. Now, I'm going to do just a little bit of explaining because honestly, picking a quarterback to be the leading rusher in a six-game slate when there's five other games out there that have running backs is pretty ballsy. But the reason I made this pick is because the Eagles' main running back, Miles Sanders, might not play. And I think Jalen Hurts is either going to try and throw a lot or what he's going to do, because he's a really good running quarterback, is try and take over the game in that aspect. So there might be a lot of read option plays, RPO plays, and rollout plays. And if Jalen Hurts is rolling out of the pocket looking to pass, I can guarantee you if he breaks out for a huge run, he might do it a couple times. So I'm going to be putting $10 risked on Jalen Hurts being the leading rusher after this weekend. It's a super dumb bet if you ask me, and I wouldn't say to follow it, but I'm doing it just for fun, and the odds are plus 2,000. So if Jalen Hurts somehow is the leading rusher after this NFL wildcard weekend, and the Eagles don't have to win, he just has to be the leading rusher, this $10 bet would win me $200. i am not expecting it, but it's something that'd be fun to root for. So that's going to be my picks for this NFL wildcard weekend. Because I made a killing over the last couple days on betting, mostly this week, I decided to roll some of those bets into futures and risk some of it into this NFL wildcard weekend. So I'll be risking about 140 total dollars, 60 being in my regular bets, 80 being in these futures. And whether you decide to fade or follow my picks, I hope you find a way to make money if you decide to listen to me and put in the time on this podcast. So until next time, all my friendly degenerates, ape out. Welcome back, class. Today's lesson is going to be on repurchasing agreements and reverse repurchasing agreements, also known as repos and reverse repos. Now, today's lesson is going to be a quick one because I don't know all the ins and outs on repos at all. 
As a matter of fact, over the last week, I've just kind of learned about them. But with anything in the financial market world, I can try to look at it and examine it to the best of my abilities and then try and explain it here to you. And the reason I chose repos as today's lesson, because it's not something I initially had in my lesson plan, but it's because of that article I talked about in the investing segment. So I'll draw back to that article later on in the lesson after I at least get a fundamental and conceptual basis for what repos and reverse repos are. So for starters, let me give Investopedia's definition of what a reverse repo is. And a reverse repo is a purchase of securities with an agreement to sell them at a higher price in the future date. So whereas it's a reverse repo for the company buying the securities, and if they're selling it, it's considered a repo or repurchase agreement. Repo is just for short. And now typically these reverse repos and repos happen between large banks, inter-party brokers, hedge funds, any kind of financial institution with large amounts of cash and let's say they're short on liquidity in the moment so they would perform this repo kind of transaction. And the reason I just explained to you typically the two parties involved in these reverse repos and repos is because the Fed can also come in and perform repos and reverse repos. The thing is, when the Fed comes in, the label of the actual repo or reverse repo is not reflected on the Fed, but the counterparty themselves instead. I'll be diving into this point later, I just wanted to bring it up now. Now another key bit of information on these repurchasing agreements is that the life cycle for these agreements is typically overnight. So these loan cycles are honestly just short term, and by short term, they are no longer than a day. So they're essentially overnight loans. So now you might ask, why would someone need an overnight loan if they're going to pay it back the next morning? Well, it's a little bit over my head and my pay grade right now won't be in the future. But for now, all I can tell you is that these central banks and anyone that uses a reverse repo does it in order to add money to their money supply. And typically, whenever there's a struggling party on a cash flow or liquidity basis, they would perform these repurchasing agreements. And a lot of what I just said is all true if it happens between two parties and one of the parties is not known as the Fed. Because whenever the Fed gets involved, it works a little differently. Because the Federal Reserve isn't a central bank themselves. They are the central bank. So to ask them for a loan is asking them to print money. So when the Fed performs a repo, what technically happens behind the scenes is they're putting money into the banks. And when the Fed performs a reverse repo, they're technically borrowing money from the money supply system because there's too much liquidity. And I think the best way to try and explain this reverse repo and repo situation is to just use two banks or two parties, if you will, and just run through a reverse repo situation. So let's take both situations at hand. You've got bank one and bank two. Bank one is in desperate need of some cash because they need to close out their books by the end of the night. Bank two is not in need of extra cash and they've got some extra securities just lying around. What bank one and bank two can do is go through this repurchasing agreement. Since bank one desperately needs the cash by the end of the night, and bank two doesn't necessarily need these securities, they can quickly do a swap. So let's say that bank two decides to give $100 million worth of cash for the securities bank one gives to them overnight. 
Now what's going to happen is Bank One's going to receive this $100 million in cash. And for this short period of time, whether it's one night, one hour, however long, Bank Two is going to be holding onto those securities. Now let's go back to Bank One and find out what's happening in that one or two hour time period that they're holding onto that $1 million of cash. Well, it's obvious. They're cooking their books. I'm joking. They're probably just restructuring some very smart financial decisions they've made. But nonetheless, back to the main point. Because Bank One now has this $100 million of cash, but they're going to have to send the cash back to Bank Two and repurchase those securities that they gave out. But it comes at a cost, because you can't just give the money back. After all, why would a company risk giving you $100 million just to return the money back? So this time, when you repurchase those securities, you're actually going to be giving, let's say, $105 million in cash. This way, Bank2 now earned $5 million in cash on interest overnight by just lending you money to help fix your books. And that, my ladies and gentlemen, is what a reverse repo and repo is. Because if you're a buyer or seller, it's called two different things. If you're the buyer of the securities, it's considered a reverse repo. And if you're the seller of the securities, it's just considered a repo. So that's all the information I've got for you on reverse repurchasing programs and repurchasing programs. But the lesson plan obviously had a purpose to it. Because now I can dive back into that article I talked about in the investing segment. And this time, because I just explained reverse repos, maybe it'll hit a little bit differently. I also would like to point out an alarming stat I found on a website. And this is a website that anyone can find and use. And it's a governmental website nonetheless. And since I've already mentioned the article, let me quickly talk about the website I'm talking about. And the website is called Fred. The Federal Reserve Economic Data Website. So this is the website the Fed actually publishes to you as a user if you want to look at it. It's also probably their way of saying, well, we gave you the information in case you ever try and say, how'd you not see shit hitting the fan? But regardless, on this website, you can get all kinds of economic indicators. The one economic indicator I looked at specifically for this podcast's airing is overnight reverse repurchasing agreements that the Fed implores. So the Fed actually updates their repos and reverse repos every single day, but they only disclose the amounts. They don't disclose the banks that they offer these reverse repos to. And according to the article I talked about earlier, well, even if they were to disclose the names of the banks, it's not likely you're going to hear about it because the media would just shut the hell up. And if you want to find out which banks are getting these loans, you're going to have to wait eight quarters or whatever that stupid little loophole ring system was created in the financial market system to find out the banks that are getting these significant loans. So now that I briefly explained this Fred website to you, let me quickly review the important parts of the article that I want to touch upon so I can continue with this lesson plan. One of the biggest things I still remember, and I think I will never forget now, is that at the end of the last quarter in 2019, so this means all of October, November, and December, the total amount of loans actually given out. So this means that if you gave out $10 one day, $10 the next day, your cumulative total would be 20. So this means for the three months, 
the cumulative total of all loans was $4.5 trillion, okay? So this just means $4.5 trillion were printed during that three-month period. And how do I know they were printed? Well, because the Federal Reserve has a policy put in place called quantitative easing. And the way they are able to print money technically is by offering these T-bills. What are treasury bills? Well, when the Fed offers these treasury bills, they can be any kind of lengthened contracted treasury bill. They can even be one-day treasury bills. You know what one-day T-bills are? They're essentially repo loans. So the Fed has access to printing these treasury bills and using them as repo loans. Now that you're aware of this, get ready for some real information. Because according to our article, we found out that in those three quarters, the $4.5 trillion worth of money the Fed just printed to loan out via treasury bills to all of these banks, of those banks, whatever the list was, 20, 50 banks, who knows how large the list is, three of those banks were JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and Citigroup. And this is current day, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not talking about the 2005, 2006, 8 housing crash. I'm talking about a 2019 credit crisis and how quickly people were to forget because since then, obviously a lot of shit has hit the fan. We've had a pandemic and this is in my opinion what makes this reverse repo shit really bad. Now keep in mind, I'm still very new to understanding this, so I might be a little bit wrong in the true explanation, but conceptually I don't believe I'm wrong. Because if I'm right, and in my simple explanation I used of the two banks and one needing money, a reverse repo essentially means that someone is buying securities. So when the Fed is doing a reverse repo, that means they're buying securities from these banks. Why is this bad? Because I just explained in my stupid scenario that if you're doing the reverse repo and you're buying the securities first, you're going to be paying more cash out when you buy those securities back. So let me run my bank one and bank two situation using the Federal Reserve and on the other side of the equation is JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and Citigroup. And now you remember how I said that one talking point about how if the Fed has a repo or reverse repo rate, they don't label it on the base of themselves but the counterparty instead? What that means is if something is considered a reverse repo rate, the Fed isn't doing the reverse repo rate, it's the bank instead. So if you were to read an article that said the Fed just completed a reverse repurchasing obligation with JP Morgan, what that would mean is JP Morgan purchased these treasury bills with an agreement to sell them later at a higher price. And remember that these treasury bills or these reverse repos typically last overnight. So they're essentially just quick loans to cover your books and then later on, the next morning or so, you give the money back with some extra on top. So my understanding from all of this is that during that last quarter of 2019, the whole banks, all the banks that were in this credit crisis, needed liquidity fast. So they used the Federal Reserve to purchase these overnight loans, get cash, fix up their books, and they were willing to lose money by giving back the securities and paying extra cash for it because it meant they had enough cash in their money supply overnight to cover their books. Now whatever is going on behind the scenes is unknown 
because the financial markets are untransparent. But one thing I learned in accounting is that no matter what happens, at fraudulent levels, at any level, the truth always comes out. And unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, I think the truth is starting to come out. It was slowly unwinding and people were easily making jokes about gas prices being high. But now, the reason I shed a tear the other night is because after I read the article, my oh shit moment was that, oh my god, the truth is coming out. And what the truth is, is not pretty. So now I'm about to run over some numbers I got off of the Fred report and primarily the main reason I shed a tear. And the reason I shed this tear is because I looked at the reverse repo chart the Fed has on their Fred website. Now I'm going to try and quickly explain this chart the best way I can, but that's not really going to be the point that hits it home. Because for this chart, the x-axis, which is the horizontal side, is a time scale. So this time scale goes about from 2000 to present day. And you can toggle with it, but what you'll notice is that the reverse repo stuff didn't really hit into effect until 2013, and there's some reasons for that, but I'm not going to be explaining it in today's lesson. The part that really sucks, and this is the part that I'm going to hate getting into soon, is what's on the y-axis, and that's the vertical side, and it's because the metric is in billions of US dollars. And as one would hope, the metric only goes up by increments of 10, well, our US financial system is so fucked up that the increments actually increase by 200. So there's incremental increases of $200 billion for every single thing on this chart up until $2 trillion. And keep in mind, this is not cumulative growth, so this means these are just overnight loans. With that said, let me dive into some numbers that I personally think are scary, but I truly don't understand this reverse repo situation 100%. So there is a chance I might be misinterpreting the data. If I am, I'll be sure to quickly correct myself as soon as I catch that mistake. But for now, I don't think I am, so I'll just roll along with this. So I guess the only way to start this Fred report analysis on a chart you can't really even see is to give you a common benchmark. And let's start with 2008 because unfortunately that was when I was a kid, but the economic world was going in a housing crash and I had zero clue. During this 2008 housing crash, according to the Fred report, I did about what the average reverse repo rate was, and it was about $25 billion. What this means is that on any given day during 2008's housing crash, banks were getting loaned up to $25 billion. Now that was probably a lot of money back then, because you have to remember the money supply where the amount of money actually circulating in the market probably wasn't that much. So 25 billion was probably a huge chunk of it. So I'm hoping that made a little bit of sense. What this means is that on any given day, the worst days specifically in 2008, the loans that the Fed needed to reverse repo out quantified up to $25 billion worth of US dollars. And it wasn't until 2013 that this reverse repo stuff started getting used more and implemented by the Fed. The reason in my opinion is probably due to the quantitative easing policy, but I'll have to do a little bit more research to get a real answer on that. Regardless, if you were to look at the Fed's reverse repo chart like I am right now, you would notice that in 2013, that's when the chart starts to pick up some life. And from 2013 to 2018, 
the chart hovered between 20 and 250 billion dollars. So this means on some of the best days when banks didn't need to borrow money, they would only borrow about 20 billion per day. And on the worst days when they needed liquidity, they would borrow up to 250 billion dollars. That's pretty goddamn large, considering 25 billion is what was needed during a housing crash. Then after about the middle of 2018, things started to die down, at least in terms of the Fed giving out these reverse repos, and the US dollar amount started lowering and started hovering at normal amounts, where the top level seemed to only be maybe 20 billion. So now the range is 0 to 20, instead of 20 to 250. Now if you're lost so far, just bear with me because I'm gonna try and explain this in an easy language at the very end of this whole chart breakdown. So, you know how I said things died down after middle of 2018? Well, then shit hit the fan and the pandemic happened. And during March 20th of 2020, which was one of the worst stock market days in terms of the COVID pandemic, the reverse repo rate on that day was $237 billion. So, remember how I said from 2018 to about that point, the range was 0 to 20? This means that on that day, the banks needed about $240 billion worth of liquidity just to keep markets up and alive. And honestly, who could blame banks or any kind of institutions at that matter of fact? Because who could have seen a pandemic coming? No one. But that's not where things really start to worry me. Where things start to worry me is if you were to look at this chart, it literally looks like the biggest bubble period for any kind of stock out there. Like if you were to look at this chart and think of it as a stock, you would tell someone not to buy it. Because starting March 24th of 2021, this chart, and it's a chart, not a stock, ladies and gentlemen. Remember, it's a chart of how much money is being used in these reverse repos on a nightly basis started spiking. So if you thought 237 was a big number, well, try 1536.98, which was what the last reverse repo amount was, and that's as of January 12th, 2022. So just a couple nights ago, there was $1.5 trillion worth of money exchanged from the Fed and big banks via treasury bill loans. And remember, I said this is not cumulative, so that was just for one night. This means if by tonight, which is the time from my editing to the time the episode actually gets aired, if another 1.5 trillion gets recorded, guess what? We're now at $3 trillion of cumulative loans in just two days on this reverse repo program, and we thought 4.5 trillion was a credit crisis back in 2019. Oh, and I also forgot to mention how stupid could I be? Three of the banks that were in these credit crises were JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and Citigroup. I mean, I'm pretty sure they figured it out, so it's probably nothing to worry about by now, guys, because I don't think those three banks are on the same list. I mean, they possibly couldn't be. There's no way these banks are now asking for a total of $1.5 trillion nightly just to cover their books. I mean, come on, that sounds preposterous. There's more stability, accountability, and who knows, professionalism out there in these market systems. 
fuck the establishment for the matter of fact and ladies and gentlemen after i read the article of the media having a blackout on the naming of the banks that had to borrow from the fed in 2019 so two and a half years ago okay two and a half years ago these big banks needed money for a credit crisis before the covid pandemic before all of these supply chain issues they had these issues the reason i cried is because i've been following super stonk i look at reddit i'm an avid follower of gamestop and it's a meme when we post this reverse repo shit but the reality of it didn't hit me until just a couple nights ago these banks are borrowing a shit ton of money and they're willing to pay higher interest because they don't want to park their money out there on the market which means they know something's up and this has happened before in the past the 2008 housing crash was no accident it was caused by banks and to make it even worse it was predatory practices of banks and then they got bailed out so they've got the mindset that if shit hits the fan they can just go looking around for other helpers and guess what i'm afraid right now that we've got three pieces of shit for sure jp morgan which is a bank i bank with but they're still a piece of shit jp morgan citigroup and goldman sachs i'm worried that at least these three predators and more are starting to use the fed's reverse repo rate as a way to gain liquidity and try to make up for their market fuck-ups because who knows how these guys trade they probably trade more degenerative than wall street bets's whole forum the only thing is they've always got a bailout option and you and me as regular retail investors well we just have losses that we can carry forward on our taxes aside from that no one's gonna bail us out if we make a dumb trade but if these big banks do they can go to papa jerome and he's gonna print more money for them and now i'm hoping today's lesson wasn't super dense and you were at least able to follow along a little bit if not I'm hoping I at least sparked an interest so you can maybe watch a video on what reverse repo is and then start understanding or seeing if this might be a problem. Maybe you can ask someone who knows more about it than I do and ask them the same question. Is it smart if banks are borrowing $1.5 trillion overnight? And if he says yes, then maybe I'm the one that's dumb. And maybe I'm just Steve Carroll's character in the big short constantly thinking that there's bigger players out there screwing the market and i'm just happening to see the numbers behind it i'm hoping i'm wrong i really do hope i'm wrong and i hope i sound like a tinfoil asshat but god have mercy on all of us if i'm not and i will apologize if i put a damper on your day with today's lesson what i'll end with is whenever it seems like there's a lot of darkness remember there have been plenty of people in those shoes and there will always be those that are fighting a bigger battle. So whenever you feel like you're in the dark, there's always going to be a light somewhere there for you to reach for. So don't let the incompetence of a couple of big huge banks, the Federal Reserve, and maybe even the whole establishment itself get to you as much as it's gotten to me over the past couple days. And if you've made it this far into this lesson today, I just want to say thank you, love you, and until I post more happy and gleeful episodes, ape out.
when I saw that article, my first thought was, I'm gonna call my mom. <laughs>